I can't even describe to you the feelings of abandonment that I felt as the caregiver with my dad. So often families are torn apart because they can't agree on what's the right thing to do. Hi, I'm Bobby. I was a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, for seven years, and I am now a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I was the secondary caregiver for my dad, Roger, as in Roger That Thought Show, and I am now a certified caregiver advocate. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. And today we welcome Denise Brown, who is the owner of caregiving.com and who works so hard and so tirelessly through the year to support caregivers in so many different ways. And I hope we can touch on a number of them today. So welcome, Denise. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Mike. How are you guys? Well, I'm doing awesome. And I'm doing awesome and it's going to get better. (laughs) Congratulations on your show. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Our first few episodes are going to be based around um, Diagnosis Day, and I know that you took care of your parents. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you? Sure. My parents are 88 and 85, and my dad was diagnosed with bladder cancer in 2004. And that, for us, was the first Diagnosis Day. My parents had been out of town, on vacation, enjoying retirement, (laughs) and my dad had blood in his urine. And he was desperate to come home. So they came home early. We did some tests to figure out what was going on. And it's that day that you always remember. We were sitting in the doctor's office. They told him he had bladder cancer. I took notes. I thought my best role that day would be the one to receive the information so that my parents could just worry about feeling it. So they received the news through the emotion. I wrote it down on paper and pen. And then we went out for lunch, which I always felt was our silent agreement that we were just going to keep going. We were going to keep living. We were going to enjoy life. We were going to move forward and be part of it together, that this wasn't something that my dad was going through it alone. We were with it together to support him. And I remember when we got back to their house, my mom pulling out a stool that she used in the kitchen and she pulled the stool up to the phone that was on the the wall because they had a landline then. Boy, that seems like (laughs) years ago, doesn't it? And she pulled out out her address book and she just started making the phone calls to family, to friends, to say, just want to let you guys know dad's been diagnosed. And I always think about those moments of courage on diagnosis day I think the fact that we went out for lunch and just talked about it, but then talked about sports. And then my my mom pulling out that stool, pulling out her address book and saying, I'm going to be the one that tells everyone. And then making phone call after phone call after phone call. I can see where you got your strength from your mom. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For my mom, she didn't, she had an internal bleed. And I guess that's, that was her diagnosis. And her diagnosis day was much more chaotic and stressful. She went into the emergency room. They determined that she had an internal bleed, but it was not a bleed that they could stop with typical procedures. 
through radiology. They ended up having to remove a third of her stomach to stop the bleed. So the, the variations between the diagnosis days were significant just within my family. Something that is urgent and crisis versus something that, okay, we've got the news, let's make the plan, let's, let's plan this out, let's see what we can do together. So in, in your dad's diagnosis, your mom was kind of the, the person who said, okay, here's the actions that, that need to happen, and she kind of went into action. When your mom was diagnosed, did you assume that role? I did, and part of it was because my dad was recovering from surgery because at that time his cancer had spread. So it was 11 years after his original diagnosis, his cancer had spread to his bladder, his kidney, and his ureter. He had surgery to remove those organs. And then he had a series of little blips along the way. And then three months later, four months later, my mom was in the emergency room. I mean, there's no other way to say it, but she was just bleeding to death. And he was already weak and recovering. And it was difficult for him really to even manage the emotions around that. So I was the one that pretty much stepped up with the help of my siblings. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of, on you emotionally? Of, you know, you were hit with these two things uh, for people that you that you love so much. And we've talked about how your mom handled it. But emotionally, where were you at that point? You know, I, I think about it as let's just manage what's happening. So I guess my, my approach was pragmatic. Let's figure this out. I did not want to be the one who fell apart. And then everybody was like, well, you're adding to the crisis. I wanted to be the the steadfast, calm one that managed the crisis. Of course, I had some difficult moments, but that was what I thought was best for the family. And I, I found it interesting because there was an insight that I had about my younger sister during this time. So when I would go to the hospital, I would get there early for grand rounds because I wanted to catch a doctor to figure out what was going on with my mom. And I worked when I was at the hospital. You guys know this. When there's a hospitalization, you work chasing down the, the nurses, making sure that the care is adequate and appropriate. I would be helping my mom. And then my sister would come and she would just sit and visit. She would talk and socialize with my mom. And I would think, what is this? There's things to do until I had this insight that, oh my gosh, she is our breath of fresh air. She is our break. I need to embrace that. So when she would come, I made sure she had plenty of time to visit with my parents. They so enjoyed just focusing on something else other than what was really going on. And then I took a break with her. I went to the hospital cafeteria. We had something to eat. This was during the summer, so we would sit outside. And what my my mom did say to me at one point, she said, well, you're the one that does the work, but it is nice to have Julie come and give us a break. And I thought, okay, I get get it. I had already gotten it, but that really, that sealed it for me. I got it then. So that was your aha moment. Yes, everybody brings something really amazing to the experience. And we can either resent it, for instance, I could have resented my younger sister for not doing work, for not being on top of it, but she was. She was bringing something that was brilliant and beautiful to the experience, a break that we all needed. We just needed to focus on things that were going on in life that made us 
feel like life was continuing, that there was hope that we could look forward to things, that we could just take a break from trying to figure out what to do next and just be together and enjoy those moments. So is this your only sibling uh, or do you have others that were participants? Yeah, I have four siblings. I'm the fourth of the five. And my oldest sister is no longer involved in helping. She got mad at us during these medical crises and removed herself really from the family. Well, that brings up an issue that's very common when it comes to caregiving. So often families are torn apart because they can't agree on what's the right thing to do or how to go about doing it. Yeah, yeah. I started working with family caregivers in 1990, and then I launched my website, caregiving.com, in 1996. And really one of the themes I would say that's fairly common in caregiving is that there does become a disruption in the family system. So for 30 years, I've been really a witness to this disruption. And I have an older sister who is, uh, (laughs) I'm trying to think of the nice word. She is erratic, I guess, would be the way to describe her behavior. So we already had experienced her as someone who was erratic. And it really wasn't a surprise to us when her erratic behavior just it just was that much louder, I guess, would be the way to express it. Um, I, You know, I have a caregiving support group that I lead in our local community, and we met yesterday, and, and one of the very wise women in that group said, you know, when you're dealing with family, you, you're not managing the disease, you're managing the people, and how you react to them is so important. And she has a wonderful way of just looking at people and saying, well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, you know, I think the hardest part for my older sister and the impact on the family is that it's been heartbreaking for my mom. So it's difficult to be able to watch what's happened and not just feel this horrible pain for my mom. It's been heartbreaking for her. My sister lives nearby. She lives near my parents. She does not text them or call them or visit them. She does not reach out to them on the holidays, birthdays, anniversaries. She has no contact with them. Yeah, I had a very similar situation. I have one brother, and my father had one brother. And my uncle lived about 25 minutes away. My brother lived about an hour away. And I will tell you that in seven years, my uncle visited Italy more times then he visited, he visited Italy more times in one year than he visited my dad one hour away. And I can't even describe to you the feelings of abandonment that I felt as, as the, the caregiver with my dad. And my brother, if there wasn't anything in it for him, then he wasn't interested. And the only times he came and visited is when I basically threatened him that he had to come visit. And it's, it's kind of a, uh, heartwarming to hear that you actually had somebody there to just give you a breath. Because uh, I know Bobby pulling the lion's share of, of taking care of my dad. Um, there was nobody but us. We were in it together, and there was no support elsewhere. Well, what so often happens with caregivers and caregiver families, once somebody steps up to do it, the rest of the family allows them to do it. Uh, and sometimes it's just because they're busy with their own lives and they don't realize how difficult what you're doing is. And other times they just feel, why, I, 
why do I have to do this? Somebody's got this already. And eventually people begin to drop off. You know, they might invite you to come to a party or to go out to dinner or something like that. And as so many times you refuse, they stop asking. Caregiving becomes very isolating. And Denise, that's why some of the things that you do have become so important. Um, at which stage in your caregiving did you start caregiving.com and begin the wonderful work that you're doing um, that's affecting so many people now? So I actually started my business prior to having a personal caregiving experience. I had been working with family caregivers and social service agencies and as an admissions director in a nursing home between 1990 and 1995. And my experience with family caregivers really led me to want to support and help them, which is why I launched caregiving.com to be able to provide them a safe place to be able to talk honestly about what their caregiving days are like. I know it certainly had a huge impact on my life. I had no idea when Roger came into our home that it would change my life so dramatically. It changed um, the whole direction of what I do now, but I have to say it was the hardest thing I ever did. Uh, sometimes people ask, would you do it again? And I'd say yes in a heartbeat, but I would not make the mis same mistakes because I know more now than I did then. But I also know I would make different mistakes because there's no way to be a perfect caregiver. One of the things that's so important about the caregiving.com is that you have all these folks that are there. And as you say, they have a safe place where they can talk about um, caregiving and the frustrations of caregiving. Um, how would somebody go about uh, being a member of caregiving.com or uh, being part of it? It's really easy. You can register a free account. And then once you register your account, you can start blogging. You can join our groups. We have chats that are scheduled three times a day, every day. If you'd like to just kind of test us out, you can join a chat without joining the website. You can be a guest in our chat room to connect to the other members, decide if it's the right place for you. So it's easy. And one of the things that I really want it to be important about the website is that it's us and our voice. We're the experts in a caregiving experience, which is why we're the bloggers, for instance, on caregiving.com. We're the featured stars because we're the ones that know it best. It's part of our life. It's 24-7. Sometimes we can go to workshops or events and it's for instance, a doctor telling us what it's like. But if that doctor hasn't had a personal caregiving experience, the doctor isn't going to be able to relate to us because it's us. We understand it, which is why it's so important to be connected to that peer community of others who understand. Now, for the listeners to, to our show, we're, we are going to have a link to caregiving.com off of the Roger that dot show. Um, so people will have an easy way to get to you just by going through us. So we will put that up on the Roger that dot show website. That's awesome. I appreciate that. Now you mentioned, you know, people who have not, um, 
been caregivers not understanding it and what it's really like. And I've also, I've heard from professional caregivers that work in, in care homes and care facilities and they do a beautiful job there. But when it count, when it comes to taking care of a family member, they end up right back in it, just like the rest of us. All of a sudden it becomes personal and a whole lot more difficult, which is why we need more and more caregivers supporting caregivers. And that, and that's really why I started doing what I do, knowing how difficult it was and not having the information ahead of time to prepare to do this kind of thing. I was lost and um, I was having panic attacks. I was having migraines, my hair was falling out. I didn't want anybody to have to go through that. So I decided that I would do everything I could to, to support the caregivers going forward. So Denise, getting um, talking about your website, you also um, host uh, stories, if I'm correct, I believe it's one of the largest online libraries of caregiving stories. Is that correct? Yeah. Between our blogs and our podcasts and our video chats, we have really cultivated this amazing library of stories. In addition, we do things like write six-word stories. So pretty much every week I prompt visitors and members of the website to write a six-word story. So, for instance, a couple weeks ago, we wrote six-word stories about our lonely moments. And there's about 72 different six-word stories about those lonely moments. I know who did there's one some- of them. Ah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's something powerful, I think, in being able to write and release what you think and what you feel and then to let it go. I think in the letting go, you, re- you receive a perspective that helps you feel like you're on the path to healing. And when you ask for six words, it's not overwhelming to somebody that thinks they have to sit down and draft a whole big story. And it was a surprise to me. I didn't know that you wrote a six, six word story. Surprise. <laughs> you, 32 <laughs> years and you still surprise me. Well, you, um, at your conference, um, and we've just concluded your fourth um, national caregivers conference, uh, beginning of November. And you also um, uh, do a call out for stories and you publish those stories in a book? Correct. So our presenters of our conference compile stories into a book. And it's a memory book that attendees at our national conference receive. In addition to the stories from the presenters, there's also blank pages so the attendees can write down memories of the conference or their own stories that are sparked because of what they've read or heard. And it's really a memory book, and that's what we call it. So last year we did it, this year we did it again. And we hope that attendees appreciate it as really a beautiful keepsake of a special weekend in their life. Okay, as we um, get close to the the end of our visit with you today, I, I have some questions. One thing I would like to ask you, what was your most difficult challenge as a caregiver? And what advice do you have for caregivers who are might be dealing with that now? I think my most difficult challenge was when my parents decided to move out of a retirement community. After their summer of terrible health challenges, it was impossible for them to move back home. My mom wanted to, my dad didn't want to, so I stepped in and said, Mom, you can't move home. I mean, that talk about a terrible day. That was an awful day. 
So my father and my brother and I had looked at retirement communities, and there's one in the suburb that we live in that my dad was like, I want to live there. So that's where they moved. And we encouraged my mom to look at it as short term. Let's get through the Chicago winter and then talk about whether or not you want to stay. Well, we barely made it into January before my mom called a family meeting, stood up in, in, in front of us and said, I am not dying in this dump. <laughs> so we had a move. Now, the, the place they lived, the retirement community, was not a dump. It was a beautiful place. I loved it there. My dad did too. But my mom hated it. My mom is fighting death, and that was too close to death for her. So they decided to move across the street to an apartment. It was actually a condo that they rent. They live there now. I was so mad when they wanted to move because I thought it was going to really be detrimental to my dad's health. I thought it was irresponsible and somewhat selfish of my mom to not think about the impact on the rest of us. Oh, I was so mad. I was so mad. And I was mad at them. And I told them that I wasn't going to support it. And then I was driving home after a visit with them when I thought, I am not supporting this. I thought, oh, my God, it's not my life. My vision for my parents' end of life is that they die gently, that they live somewhere where there's carpeting, where they pick up the phone and there's a CNA who comes immediately after they fall. That's what I wanted for them. That's not what my parents want for themselves. And once I realized that, that I was trying to live their life and I let go, things got so much easier. What a wonderful message. They live in an apartment that has hardwood floors. So when they fall and they fall, there's blood and gore. And I go and manage the blood and gore. And I am not resentful about it or bitter about it. It is their life. And I feel much better about knowing that they are living the way they want. So that even if their death is not gentle, it's the death that they picked for themselves, so to speak. And in that perspective, I really have opened up to the fact that if I try to control it, it is going to be a nightmare situation for all of us. We struggle with how much do I control in this situation? My parents are not cognitively impaired. So the, the struggle for me to figure out how much I control was a little bit of a tough one. But I do think that when we can understand that we don't have to prevent death, that if we try to take that on, we're going to make ourselves crazy and that we are not here to keep someone alive forever because that's an impossible feat. We are here to make sure that people live as long as they have a life. And that perspective has really helped me. So I guess that would be the perspective I would share to someone else who might be struggling with something similar. So Denise, um, we have time for one more question. And what we'd like for you to do is to um, please share with us a cherished memory or a funny incident uh, in your caregiving um, journey. So I think about the moments that I've had with my parents that are pretty special. So over Labor Day, I took them on a car ride to their old neighborhood in Chicago. So we went by where they each grew up their first house that they bought after they married. And then we also went by Wrigley Field. My mom grew up by Wrigley Field. It was just a, a huge presence in their life. My dad as well. We lived in the city when we were kids. My brothers took the bus to Wrigley Field. It was a part of, you know, our growing up. So we drove by Wrigley Field and that was fun too. 
And then afterward, we went out for lunch, and my dad had a beer. He loves to have a beer now that he's not driving. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the driver, so he could have a beer. And he just lifted up his his sign of beer and said, that was a great day. I think, ah. Oh, you can't put a price tag. You best. can't put a price tag on that. Yeah. Denise, thank you so much for being with us today. And again, you are Denise Brown of caregiving.com. Yeah, thank you both so much. Lovely to be with you. I so appreciate the opportunity to connect and share. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby. And I'm her husband, Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know how we can help. Or if you have a question you'd like for us to address, drop us a line. Or you could just say hi. Now, to find out more about us, more about my dad, Roger, or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to rogerthat.show. That's roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.